Father in heaven, thank you for this afternoon and for all that we've uh, been able to benefit from here in camp meeting so far this year. You've already blessed us abundantly. And even if we even went home right now with uh, that uh, experience that we've had up to this point, we would be blessed. But Lord, there's some things we still uh, need to learn that you want us to learn. We want to be the best that we can and we have uh, be in our leadership roles. And here we have deacons and deaconesses that have come to learn as well. Pray that your Holy Spirit will be here and that you will guide our conversation, our learning, and the words that I speak and our ears that hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I've given you three books. The key book that we're going to be using in our seminar today is this one entitled The 21st Century Deacon and Deaconess, written by Vincent E. White. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. A couple of other books that you have also been given is the companion to this book, and I'm not holding it up at the moment, but I should do that, and I'm doing mainly for the video, but uh, this companion book will help you. You and I are not going to be able to go in depth through this book. In other words, I can't cover everything that's in this book in the short amount of time we have. We have all of six hours and a half to be able to do this, actually not quite a half. And that's not enough time to be able to actually go through this. But you can go home and say, all right, he's whetted my appetite. I've got an idea where I'm going now, but I want to look at this more in depth. And I also want to, uh, I want to share this with others. And, and so you'll have that book to go along with it. This companion book is a workbook that goes along with the chapters and just gives you a study tool. I'm not going to try to go through this chapter by chapter today you'll find that basically what he does when you, when you take and use this tool and review your material, you'll find that what he does is he starts at the beginning of the chapter and then he goes from paragraph to paragraph and not always every paragraph and then makes his way through. That's in the first chapter. So you can start at the beginning and kind of work your way through. You get to the second chapter and then you say, wait a minute, I'm lost now. And that's because he starts jumping. And he, uh, instead of the first paragraph, uh, and the first question paralleling the first paragraph in the book, he might go somewhere else first <laughs> and then work his way back. And I learned that the hard way. So just a little clue if you're going through this. Don't get discouraged. It's in there. It is in there. And you will you'll be able to find it. But we will not use that as a tool here. I'm giving it to you to, uh, to work with right now. And I just want that to be beneficial to you. This uh, red book that I've given to you is entitled Seventh-day Adventist Deacons and Deaconesses Handbook. Previous classes I've taught did not have this handbook because it didn't exist. It has recently just come out, produced by the General Conference, and uh, it's something that you uh, definitely want to have, produced by the Ministerial Association of the General Conference, and I've given it to you. You don't even have to go buy it, and uh, it's free to you but it's going to cost you a lot of time and a lot of work. And God will use you because of it. It's a good tool, and some of the things we'll be talking about are reflected in here. Um, and we will uh, look at some special parts of this. But this is a reference tool for you. 
if you are as a deacon or deaconess, you're trying to understand how you should do something or what you should do in particular, if you open the handbook, you'll see some of the chapters that are listed there, and you'll recognize uh, a little bit of where this is going and what it might be able to uh, be, a, how it might be of value to you. Uh, look at chapter 9, for example, talks about the baptismal service. If you're a new deacon or a new deaconess and you've never done it before and your pastor isn't going to be able to help you for some reason, which pastor should be able to help you some, some way, but you want to understand the baptismal service and, and some of the details of your role in the baptismal service, that's outlined here. How about the communion service? By the way, how many of you are deacons? Okay, how many of you are deaconesses? Okay, all right, very good. And how many of you are none of the above? Well, that's okay. <laughs> we don't mind people are looking, you know. We've already gone through that route. So um, we are uh, providing you with this tool so that you can use it as a point of reference. It's also a good uh, book for you to read and recognize some of the issues of responsibility, your job description, and so on. These two books really are companion books. They weren't written that way. I'm just saying they're companion tools. They cover many of the same things. This individual does it from the perspective of a pastor and also a teacher, and he recognized the need for this kind of leadership training, and he started doing it as a pastor in his church, and over a period of time, he developed it more into a very an ongoing seminar, and he was uh, and probably still is, giving that seminar in a lot of different places and teaching. And because of that, he began to realize that there was a need for him to put it in printed form so that it could go to places he couldn't. And it made its way to our de my desk, and I took a look at it, and I said, that's a tool I need, and gave me a foundation to be able to teach this class a couple of years ago. And I've done it for a couple of uh, camp meetings now. And I think it's been beneficial. Any of you have been in my class before? All right. Good. It's all right for you to come back again, but if you're all back again, there's one of two things. I didn't teach it very well the first time, um, or the second time, you didn't learn it very well. No, I'm kidding. All right, so uh, here's, uh, here's the material that's, that I'm giving to you. A couple other things that would be very beneficial to you to have. Um, that are supporting materials. It wouldn't hurt for you to have the elder's handbook. So you have a little bit of idea what your companion leaders in your church, uh, their responsibilities are, and so that you know who to go to and what expectations that the church has of them. The elder's handbook would just be a good uh, learning tool for you. A very important tool for everyone and uh, we kind of addressed it in our elders meeting this morning, and, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about it there later. Here, and that is the Discipleship Handbook. How many of you have seen the Discipleship Handbook? Oh, wonderful. Oh, I am, I am so encouraged. Yay! I love it when I see that many hands go up. That's wonderful. I hope you, the same percentages apply to the rest of the, the camp meeting uh, attendees, because if we've done that, that's a wonderful thing. So you've been through the course, and that's, that's great. If you haven't gotten this, make sure you get a copy of it. I'll try to have some copies uh, here uh, in the next couple of days, if I can remember to do that with all the other duties that I'm, I'm doing. And last but not least, the church manual. You should have a copy of the church manual. You are leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
Therefore, you need to know what the church manual outlines for you, not only in terms of your responsibilities, but also how this church operates and how it manages things, how it deals with issues like discipline, which we'll talk about a little later in the week, how you handle challenges that come to your church and conflicts within your church and and uh, and how the church functions in its departments and how they inter- uh, interact to each other and how you can be supportive of that role, those kinds of things. The church manual is a very important tool. I would say of all the tools that I've given you between, beside the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy, if you have to say I've got to make a choice and the next so long, and I want to know which are the priorities, these are the two that I would have you read. Now, the only problem with this one is this is the old version of the church manual. And there is a now a new version, and I hope they have them upstairs. We warned them about the kinds of things that they needed to have, and I hope that the church manual is on that list. And there is a new church manual. It's been out for all of about two or three or four weeks at least in terms of I've seen it. It just came out. It's going to eventually be available online. The last time they did this, by the way, if you're not aware of this, they do it every five years. They revise the church manual every five years, coincides with with the general conference session, which makes sense because that's where the decisions are made and policy issues are addressed. And then they have to have time to get it printed and get it out into the field. And general conference was a year ago and we're just getting the new church manual now. You've got to be able to speed that up a little bit. <laughs> but it is what it is and, and here. But get a hold of the new church manual. Don't read the, if you never read the church manual, don't read the old one now. You want to get the new one, unless you want to have to read them both and, and figure that out. So start with the new one, then work back if you've got time, and you can see where the changes were and all that. All right. Let's uh, dig into our materials here a little uh, bit now. Take out your book, and we're going to start with the first chapter and lay the firm foundation for what we do. Now, I've taught three classes today, so my mind is just kind of uh, flowing together here. We did have prayer to start with, right? Thank you. We live in exciting times. Amen? This is the day that the prophets saw. Jesus is coming again very, very soon. This is the day that the prophets warned us about, spoke to us of the challenges that we would experience. Not only is this the day the prophets saw, but this is the church that the prophets told us would exist at the end of time. This is the remnant church. You are leaders in the remnant church. Not just any church, but the remnant church. That means that God does not expect you to just be like any other deacon or any other deaconess in any other denomination, whatever they might happen to call them in that denomination. In some cases, some denominations refer to them as deacons and deaconesses. Sometimes they refer to them in a different term. But whatever it is, you're not part of those denominations. You're part of the remnant church. In some places, 
Some denominations, they see the functioning of those individuals as just a task to be accomplished. You should not see your task as just being a task to be accomplished. Everybody's had a chance to sign it? Anybody not gotten to yet? Okay, looks like they haven't gotten it yet. Thank you. No problem. The model for our service in the end of time is Jesus, right? He is the one who has laid for us an example that we should follow. And the first chapter is dealing with Jesus and his model of ministry. And the reason that this is important is because the work that you do as deacons and deaconesses, you want to do as workers for Jesus and following the model that he laid down. In the paragraph that uh, is quote from Ellen White there from Ministry of Healing, in the middle of the first page, the first chapter, it says, During his ministry, Jesus devoted more time to healing the sick than to preaching. He did what? He healed the sick, and he did more of that than what? Okay. Now, you may say, all right, what does that have to do with being a deacon or a deaconess? It'll be clear as we go along. His miracles testified to the truth of his words, that he came not to destroy, but to save. The Savior made each work of healing an occasion for implanting divine principles in the mind and soul. This was the purpose of his work. He imparted earthly blessings that he might incline the hearts of men to receive the gospel of his grace. Would Jesus expect any less from any disciple of his at any time in history than what he laid as a demonstration for us? The work of imparting earthly blessings of implanting divine principles in the mind and soul, would he expect any less of disciples today than he expected then in his time? Jesus, when he set the example of not only how to live, but also how to be a disciple and a leader, he first chose 12 disciples. And he took those disciples and he taught them and he trained them, both by his own lifestyle and example and also by the information that he transmitted by way of teaching. But they saw and they recognized the steps that he took in caring about the needs of people. And the most important example that he laid down was the example of being a servant. He cared about the needs of people, and when there were needs, he sought to meet those needs. Sometimes the way they were the need for healing. The real need was a spiritual need, but he met the physical need so that he could attract to himself that person with the wonderful gift of healing so that they would be open to receiving the spiritual gift and healing that they needed. Remember the paralytic carried by his friends and trying to get into the house there and he couldn't get in and he's trying to find a way in. They couldn't make it so they went up on the roof and they let uh, the man down and, and, and the first thing that Jesus does is he heals the man of his physical malady. And then 
He also forgives his sins. But for the Pharisees' sake, he did it slightly different than that. He said, so that you know that I have power to forgive sins, get up and walk. And when the man got up and walked, he realized also his sins were forgiven, right? And we need to recognize that Jesus' example as a servant and caring about the needs of people is what he's trying to lay out for you and for me. I'm moving over to the next page, page four. The first full paragraph there, there's a quotation again from Ellen White. And she makes this statement, Rejoice not in the possession of power, lest you lose sight of your dependence upon God. Be careful lest self-sufficiently come in and you work in your own strength rather than the spirit and strength of your master. Self is ever ready to take the credit if any measure of success attends the work. You and I constantly have to find that, fight that. You and I want to do our best for Jesus, right? And then we give ourselves to Jesus and he blesses us and things go well and then we say, wow, I did a great job. It's a challenge, folks. We're human beings. We tend to want to think of ourselves as being successful. And when something good happens, we want to rejoice in that. It's okay to rejoice in the success that Jesus gives you as long as you rejoice in the success and give him the glory for what he did. If God appoints you to be the head deacon of the church, that's not your power or moment. And boy, I've been waiting to get control of this church and get it straightened out, and, and this is what I'm going to do now. I'm the head deacon, and we're going to set some controls around here. All right, let's change all the keys. I'm going to keep control of this building. We're not going to let any kid get in here ever again. And we're going to build a... You know what I'm saying? Sometimes that kind of thing happens. Now, I've been pastoring long enough to know that power does interesting things to people. Jesus was a servant. He was worthy of worship. It would have been all right for him if he said, fall down and worship me. It would have been all right for him to do that. But he came here as an example of a servant. And he taught us how to meet the needs of people as servants. Because we as human beings are servants for him. Disciples of his seeking to help people and to be a benefit to his work that way. Um, so the first thing, I'll, I'm not going to go into a lot of depth here. The clock gets away from me really quick in the six hours that we have. The main emphasis here is to realize that the whole idea of being a deacon is being a servant. And that's what the word means. Diakonos is the word for servant. And the the version that translates for you and me as deaconesses is reminding us that we are either male servants or we are female servants, but we are servants of Jesus. And the service that we do is to serve others who renders service to other people. That in itself should open our eyes to what it is that you and I do as deacons and deaconesses in our church. I shouldn't even have to tell you what your job description is because you already know it. Because 
here's the problem that we face in North America today and perhaps a good portion of the church in the world today. And that challenge is that so many people have got the idea that a deacon or a deaconess open the church on Sabbath morning, take up the offering during the church service, lock up the church after they get done, and that's their job. How much of that involved serving people? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, think about it. There's service there. You let them in. That's right. You, you help the people by shoveling the snow when it was cold outside because snow presence defines cold presence. Yeah, that's true. But it's not just that, is it? And that wasn't just the service that Jesus wanted us to render. And part of the way that we understand what our job description is to, is to pause for a few moments and ask ourselves, well, how did we get deacons in the first place? Where did that come from? Why were there deacons appointed in the church? Was it, were there always deacons? Were deacons appointed in, in Eden? Well, I don't see any evidence of deacons in in Eden, I didn't say there weren't any servants around after sin entered and, and all that, and maybe even before. Uh, and I, I mean that in a in caring about people setting, not serving people by bringing them their food or whatever the case may be. But the whole idea of a deacon and deaconess following Jesus' example is to enlist the members in service as well. And when we go to the second chapter, it talks about the role of deacons in the first century Christian church. You don't happen to need your Bibles, but you should always have them. But there's a quotation from Acts chapter 6 uh, here that I want you to uh, take a look at. It's on page 7 of the book, and we're looking at the role of deacons in the first century Christian church. And uh, I'd like to read through that passage, and I'd like you to follow along with me and uh, stay along with me because I may call on someone to read here and not bore you with all my reading. But here's how it starts out. Thank you so much for taking care of you all. all uh, you don't need this class. You're all good deacons and deaconesses already. I can see it. <laughs> all right, here we go. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied... There arose a murmuring of the Grecians among the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the ministration. Daily ministration. Important little detail there. So what was happening in the church at the time? It was growing. Good. But what else happened in the church while it was growing? Separation. What else? Pardon me? Neglecting the people. What else? Misunderstanding? Not doing the service? Or not doing it in a way that was satisfactory, apparently. Something was happening in there. So here, here you've got a church that's growing. But something begins to develop that is a problem in the church. That's Acts chapter 6. And this is what then begins to happen. Someone else read the next full sentence, please. Starting with then. And the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should read the word of God and serve the table. So who calls the people together? 
Mm -hmm. Now the interesting is it says talks here about the twelve, right? And you think of them, we usually call them the disciples, right? But it says that the twelve called the multitude of the disciples. So there's an interesting little clue, a little side side trip there. Why we should all be disciples, in other words. And they were those that were there and said, it's not reason that they should do what? We shouldn't leave the word of God and we shouldn't what? Serve tables. There's a very important, the author here uh, helps to make this point as we proceed through this chapter. There's a really critical factor happening here in relationship to the future of the church. And as you look at this, you've got to ask yourself, what is the parallel with our own time? And I think the parallel is obvious. The challenge that we have today is that there were problems in the church then, and fortunately there are no problems in the church today. Oh, that's not the parallel? The church was growing in that day, right? Is the church growing today? That wasn't as easy to answer, was it? In some places. And if the church isn't growing, maybe it's because the church isn't doing what the church should have been doing all along and what the church was doing when it was growing. And maybe there's a reason. All right, let's keep going here. The next sentence says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So how many people did he look for? And they were people of a certain caliber of leader in the church. The church could see who these people were. They weren't new converts that had just shown up the day before, but they had some kind of definition there. But we will, continuing on, give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Someone read the next sentence that begins with and, please. And the same faith of the very good. You don't have a brother named Prochorus, huh? <laughs> Some names we just kind of don't see around very much. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they chose those people, right? They chose those individuals and they were set before the apostles there. They prayed and they laid hands on them. An interesting part of the discussion we're going to get into a little bit along in our journey. And the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. What? I hope that you see what happens here. The church is multiplying. It says that in the first part of this section, right? Then it says they had a problem. <clears throat> if I understand what this is meaning to you and to me, is that they addressed the problem, they found a solution for the problem, and then what happened? The church multiplied even more. 
Is your church growing because you're a deacon? Is your church growing because you're a deaconess? Is it growing because you take up the offering on Sabbath morning? Is it growing because you help a baptismal candidate get ready for the baptismal service? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, you're adding somebody to the church. That's growing the church, right? Is it growing because you prepared the bread for communion service? Those things certainly contribute to the health of the church, but they don't necessarily make the church grow. The last uh, part of that says, Great company of the priests were obedient to the faith, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Wow, what an interesting time the church was having, and what the Lord used as an opportunity for this. Let's take this apart a little bit farther. Go to page 8, and uh, up at the top of the page, he makes this statement. He says, there was a division between the Grecian Jews and the Palestinian Jews. They were divided by language and culture. So there were some challenges that came in as the church grew. You know, the first few disciples, the first 12, all had a very similar background, relatively speaking. They were all Jews. They were all men. They all spoke the same language. They weren't any of those kinds of issues. But God wanted to reach the church, I mean reach the world with the message the church had. He wanted the church to spread to all the world, right? And in order to do that, it meant there was going to be time when he was going to encounter people of different cultures, the church was going to encounter people of different languages, and all of those issues. And the church was going to have to learn how to manage that. These issues became a problem. And he points out in this paragraph continuing, one group spoke Greek and grew up absorbed by the Greek cultural culture. The other group spoke Hebrew or Aramaic and grew up in Palestine. Despite the existing differences of these two groups, the Holy Spirit brought them together in harmony and in love. And that was a good thing. They were able to manage this together in spite of their differences. And they had all things in common. That's part of what was going on at this time. Am I correct with that? But then they ran into a problem. They had all things in common, but in order to be able to facilitate that, meant to make sure that everybody had what they needed. And in that kind of a society arrangement, as the church continued to grow, there were some things that happened, maybe inadvertently, we don't hear the details exactly as to what happened there, but there were some challenges that arose, and it began to divide because people were feeling slighted. One group was being treated apparently, or felt that they were being treated differently than the other group, so therefore they complained. They were human beings, and there were some difficulties that arose there. And the fact of the matter is, if that difficulty had not been addressed, the church, instead of growing, might have shrunk. I want to suggest to you today that there were two reasons that the church grew as a result of this move of appointing deacons in that particular time. And the reason was, number one, that the needs of the people were being met. Number two, that the 
disciples, the apostles in particular, that had been charged with the work of preaching the word and praying and being the spiritual leaders of the church were not distracted from that work. They were able to do that work instead of having to to, uh, uh, give up their task of prayer and preaching the word and advancing the gospel. So the deacons are meeting those needs, but they are also taking away from the elders the responsibility that obviously had been falling on them. And that now they recognize that they couldn't keep that up and still keep up the other work. It was great when there's only a handful of people, but now there are thousands and they're trying to meet those needs there in Jerusalem and they're not able to accomplish that. Does that give us a clue what the church needs today? See, the deacon mows the lawn instead of the pastor. The pastor can give a Bible study. The pastor can be spending time in prayer, and I just don't mean that the pastor just spends all day in prayer, but he can also be out visiting the people and getting acquainted with their needs and dealing with those kinds of things, and that's why the deacon takes care of the lawn. There's nothing more tragic in my mind in the local church than the pastor mowing the lawn. I'm not going to tell you it never happens, and there are times when there are emergencies, but it sure had better be an emergency. It better be that there's only one deacon in that church, and that deacon's in the hospital. All right, on vacation. And there are no other deacons for 100 miles. Or deaconesses. Can deaconesses mow the lawn? Wow, what a world. You understand what I'm getting at? The point that I'm trying to make is that when we begin to recognize the opportunity that God gives us, we begin to realize that we are doing our work so that everybody else in the church, from the pastor to the elders to the Sabbath school superintendent to the other, can do theirs and help to advance the kingdom by doing that. But there's a point that is easily missed in all of this, and that is that as you get into a study of what the deacons and deaconesses did, this was Acts chapter 6, am I correct? Does anybody remember what happens in Acts chapter 7? Well, not exactly, not exactly. Something interesting happened. I mean, those kinds of things happened, but in Acts chapter 7, this is what begins to happen. Stephen is stoned, but why is he stoned? Because he was handing out food? He was preaching. Do you know deacons can preach? Did you know deacons can preach? Did you know deacons can teach? Did you know deacons can give Bible studies? Did you know deacons can teach the Word of God to people who don't know the truth? So part of the reason the church was growing is because the deacons were taking care of some of the details that needed to be cared for, but maybe they weren't having to do that all the time, and they were able to still be disciples themselves. We should all be disciples. We should all be individuals that are willing to share the gospel message with somebody when God gives us that opportunity. And in some cases, we need to actually go look for those opportunities. Being a deacon doesn't mean that you only have to mow the lawn or fix the plumbing. 
Being a deaconess doesn't mean that you only need to fix the communion bread. What are the things that especially help to meet the needs of people? All right, the clock will get away from me really fast and I want to make sure I get to some really important things here. If you take your deacon deaconess's handbook, I'm going to uh, do this part here. It's done in the uh, textbook that I've given to you that we're going to look at a little bit more in depth. But I want to make sure that I cover this succinctly right at the moment. And the easiest way to do that is in the handbook. It also give you a little bit of an idea of what the handbook uh, layout of the handbook is and and uh, and what's here. Um, if you look at chapter two you'll find that the uh, um, chapter there talks about the church that we serve. The biblical basis for church organization is talking not just about deacons and elders and deacons, but is talking about the, the whole idea of especially the organization of the church and the fact that it is organized, it has structure, and has those kinds of things. Then page 19 talks about the importance of that organization and the flow of the things that happen there and a little bit of an outline of denominational organization. As a deacon or deaconess, you need to know how your church is organized so that you know how to relate to it and also how to teach other people in your church, especially the new members, about how the church functions and how 19 or 20 million members can interact with each other and the church still grow and still go in the direction God wants it to go. And, and if you don't know that, you're only, you say, well, I'm only a member of the local church. Sure, but you are part of a world church. I'm, thank, I'm thankful for camp meeting. So remind you that you're not the only little church where you're from. By the way, where are you from? Traverse City, Hastings. Where are you from, folks? Berrien Springs? Beaver? Three of you from Clare? How did we manage to pull out? Anybody else from Clare? Well, if you're all from Clare, I'll just come to your church. No. <laughs> okay. West Branch. West Branch, yeah, good. Flint, yes. Manistee. Oh, I'm sorry? Burlington. Burlington, yeah. Medmore. Ithaca. Yeah, ditto. Where? Lowell and we led him across the border. Okay? The only church that I heard that came close to being large was Berrien Springs. Are you at the Berrien Springs? Which church? Okay, Coloma Church. Okay, good, good, Coloma Church. So almost all your churches are smaller churches. I mean, you know, you're not Pioneer Memorial Church, right? And um, in all these churches, there are these needs that the church has. Um, just deciding whether to answer the phone or not, so I'm sorry. Um, your local church interacts with all the others. You come here and you realize that your Coloma church, which has 60 or 70 members or something like that, and, uh, and the Clare church, probably about the same size more or less, you know, your attendance varies and all of that, but you're part of a church where on Sabbath morning, uh, here we have 5,000 people together, 6,000 people here on the ground. Boy, wouldn't that be fun if your church was full like that all the time? Yeah, but think about the work you'd have as a deacon or deaconess picking up after five or six thousand people. And what about not only picking up after five or six thousand people, what about dealing with the messes that come in their lives along the way, right? But you're part of a large church and it's encouraging to be together and hearing God's people 
praising the Lord together, singing together, and being part of that, and hearing wonderful sermons, that encourages your heart, right? But you know, you get new members who come into the church. They don't get to come to camp meeting for some reason. They don't get that feel. Do you understand how your church is, how it organizes, how it works together, how it interacts? Do you understand all of that? You got, I'm sorry? I'm learning. You're learning, right. The local church, from the local church, you have the, the uh, conference church. We're here to help you. It's not us and them, folks. You know, if you're sitting on a board meeting, how many of you are head deacons? All right, how many of you had deaconesses? All right, we've got one. But if you're a leader sitting on the board and you hear somebody say, well, those people in the conference, now be careful, you now know one, all right? And I'm still a human being. But we're on the same team, okay? We've got to get God's work done together as a team. God wants to help us get this all together and, and, and accomplish it. So it's not us versus them. It's us, all of us, together. We're our church family together. We're part of the family together. Okay, the conference and then the structure of the church is that we have unions. The, church, the union is made up of five different conferences in this union. The Lake Union is made up of uh, uh, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan by states, and one of the conference that blends over all of them, that's the Lake Region Conference. And the headquarters for that are down in Berrien Springs, and uh, that's where they meet together. They just had their constituency meeting a few weeks ago in, uh, in May, elected the officers and so on and so forth. That again is us. When we had an ordination service, this any of you get to the ordination service on 7th? Yeah, one or two of you did. One of the individuals that was on the platform with us was uh, Elder Maurice, Maurice Valentine. He's the secretary of the Lake Union. Wonderful to have him here. He's coming and supporting us as a, a conference, supporting these young people being ordained, and all of that happens uh, in that situation. From the union, it goes to the division. The unions are, there. Um, I'm not sure, I think there are nine unions in the United States. I got that correct. May have changed. I think it's right. And they're, um, we're part of the North American Division. North American Division is the United States and Canada together with Bermuda. Don't forget Bermuda. They don't like to be left out. They may be a small island, but they're still part of the North American Division. The divisions, are there are 13 divisions, and the divisions make up the General Conference. The General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists is made up of 13 divisions around the world, and then they have a structure of leadership for that. That's how the church is organized. So the manual is giving you a little bit of an idea of that. Now we're going to get in some of the other parts here along the way. Okay, if you go to chapter um, 7, Partners in Ministry, it talks a little bit about the work of the deacons and the deaconesses. We're going to look at this a little bit more in depth uh, in a few moments as well as to, uh, to look at it later in the week. But the deacons were appointed in the church in, in Acts because what happened? Church started to grow, and because it grew, something happened. Had a need, and the need developed into a misunderstanding, neglected, a misunderstanding, there's a word, there's a C word we use, conflict, okay? 
And that's what it developed into, you see. It actually developed just like that. It started out as a need. The need wasn't being met. It was a, there was a misunderstanding, and the misunderstanding developed into a conflict. Has that ever happened in the church? So how many times when a conflict arose in your church did the church say, that's the deacon's job? Ooh, I like it, I like it. Who said that? Burlington, you said? No, no, you said Manistee. Manistee. And Claire, all right. See, the first thing that developed a need for a deacon was a conflict. And yet in our churches today, when the conflict arises, the pastor gets the phone call, right? And pastor, straighten out this conflict. So the pastor has to spend all his time dealing with the conflict. And then you get a phone call. I'm praising the Lord for that. And that's because the word is starting to spread. Now you now know that as soon as the conflict arises in the church, your phone should be ringing. Right? Okay, so job description number one. Point number one of what you should be doing is solving conflicts. That's part of your job. That was the example that was set, showing the task that needed to be done. Another thing we find in Acts chapter 6 and 7 is that your work is to spread the gospel. You're working to unite the church, bring it into harmony, and to advance the church. That is your major job and your major task. I know you thought it was to fill the baptistry. That's a part of that. That's part of facilitating that process and keeping that going. On page 63, number three says, facilitate an atmosphere of openness and friendship. I heard a lady recently give her testimony. I'm still trying to remember where I heard that testimony. I hear so many things all at once. Well, I think it was on, I've got to remember exactly where it was. All right, I'll tell you the story. You tell me where I heard it. <laughs> Lady was talking about how she joined the church. She and her daughter joined the church. And um, they got really discouraged in the church because they were looking to the church to meet their needs. And they would come out on Sabbath after church, and they would literally stand in the foyer of the church and wait until somebody invited them to lunch. And nobody ever did. Nobody ever did invite them. I know I heard it. It was in a meeting. I know I remember now. Because I happen to know who those individuals were. And she said she came back to that church some years later. She left the church for a while and came back to the church and found that the church had gotten past that and that now they invite people to come to church. There are a lot of people who never come back the second time. What are we doing as deacons and deaconesses to make sure that people are developing friendships in the church? Is somebody standing in the foyer of your church waiting to be invited to potluck and oh, and to lunch at your home or somebody else's home, and that's never being done? Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Now spread it. <laughs> Do it in your church and spread it to the churches around you. How have you? Get together in your district, and and uh, you know uh, Terry Nelson and pastors two churches, but he's the district superintendent. Get those other churches together and help those churches to grow and to know what they should be doing as deacons. Number four, cultivate the habit of praying regularly for the unity of the church. Deacons and deaconesses should be men and women of prayer. 
praying that God is going to strengthen the church, praying for the pastor to be able to do the work that has been given, praying that the leaders will be able to bring the church together. Number five, visit those who are in discouragement, disagreement, or displaying resentment toward a particular person or aspect involving local ministry. Part of your work is to visit the members. All the members. Remember, this is not about just a building and not just about things in the church and taking care of the communion service items. It is about caring about the people that you give that communion service material to when you pass out the emblems at communion. It's not just giving them the bread, it's giving them service behind that. What about those people who are hungry like the widows were? Are there hungry people in your church and you have no idea that they're hungry because you never ever went to their home? If you went to their home and you looked around, it wouldn't take long for you to figure out they don't have much. Ask yourself the question. They may not like much, so they don't have much. But is there anything in their cupboards? I don't suggest you go and open their cupboards up and look and see if in the kitchen there is any food to eat or in the refrigerator there's any food to eat. But are you getting so acquainted with people? And loving them so much that people are willing to open up to you and let you know they don't have anything to eat the next day. That's really the work that the deacons and deaconesses are given to do to meet that need. So my challenge you today, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. I don't want anybody be going away from here overwhelmed. All I'm saying to you, here's what my goal of this seminar is to make it very clear to you. My goal in teaching this seminar is to realize the wonderful opportunity that God has placed before you of caring about the needs of people. And don't just wait to be asked. Don't wait for the... Because you've already been asked. How, you, raise your hands again if you're a deacon or deaconess. Did you get there because you just said, I'm going to be a deacon today? No, you got there because the church elected you as a deacon or deaconess. Yes or no? Yes. So you've already been asked to do the work of a deacon or deaconess. Correct. So you don't have to be asked to do all this work. Here's your job description. Here's your job description. Sorry, I don't have my Bible right here. I should. There's your job description. All right. Come grab your Bible off of you. All right, let's keep going here. Um, board meetings. You should attend board meetings if you're the head deacon. Okay? If you're the head deaconess, you should be attending board meetings. If you're not the head deacon or deaconess, you should care about what happens in the board meeting. <laughs> you need to know what's going on, exactly. What kind of decisions did they make of the church? I want to know how to apply that. Did any of those decisions affect my ministry and what I'm trying to do? You know, you try to get people to a business meeting today and the same people who come to the board meeting come to the business meeting, right? Yeah, I've been to some of your business meetings, I know. <laughs> and I've been to my own as a pastor. I recognize all that. But you should know what's going on. You should know what's happening. And by the way, there should be a board of deacons and deaconesses. And the deacon and deaconesses can meet together. Sometimes that's beneficial. Sometimes it's valuable for them to meet independently. 
Maybe they should meet together for one hour and then meet separately for the next hour and have a two-hour meeting and being able to do But they should do that regularly because they need to be identifying what needs need, need to be met in the church. You may say, I know what the needs are. No, you don't. Not if you're not meeting with everybody and talking to everybody about the kinds of things that are going on, kinds of things that are happening. We can't just assume we know what's going on. We get together and we learn. We begin to also find out the kinds of things that we could be doing and that would be easy for us to do as a team. But I hear of a lot of churches whose deacons don't ever meet together. And the head deacon just gives them a list at the beginning of the quarter or the beginning of the year, and this is your Sabbath to show up and take up the offering. And that is the sum extent of the work that that deacon or deacon, is, deacon does. Deacon or deaconess does. Deacons in that day. And a lot of it centers around ushering and all that kind of thing, or mowing the lawn. And if they basically accomplish that once a month, they feel as though they've done their duty. Uh-uh. No. Deacons and deaconesses should be in church every Sabbath unless they are visiting another church on purpose for some reason, like vacation or something else. But God has given us a work to do in our churches, and our churches are weak because we as leaders are not leading our churches and not providing the direction they need, not visiting our members, not spreading the gospel, not being disciples. Our churches are dying off. My wife and I have talked in the last few months, and I've been talking about it with the leadership of our church, our conference as well. There are lists of, I'm, I'm starting to develop a church list of churches that are about ready to die. I hope yours isn't one of them. All right, I'm getting too serious. It is serious, isn't it? It really is. So a board of deacons and deaconesses meet together, and a board meetings as well. Board, uh, board of deacons and deaconesses, a great place for the head deacon and head deaconess who attended the board meeting, who did what? All oh, right. How many times you go to a board? No, I'm not going down that right. So anyway, the deacon and deaconess, head deacon and deaconess who were at the board meeting, they come now to the board of deacons and deaconesses, and they say, here's a report from the board meeting. I want you to know the things that happened. This is our financial structure. This is uh, the report we got from the treasurer. This is what's going on in the church. We need to go and visit our church members and remind them to be faithful in the taking up of the offerings. Duties of deacons, page 68. In other words, when you meet together, you organize together, there's so much that you could be doing, so many opportunities here where you could be meeting the needs of the church. Instead of the pastor having to beg for money, what if the deacons and deaconesses visited periodically? I don't want that to be the only thing they do. If that's the only thing they do, don't do it. Because people already think that the church only cares about money. I was only using that as an illustration, so I don't want that to come off in the wrong possible way and you get the wrong idea. But here are some of the duties of deacons and the duties of deaconesses on 68 and 69. Number one, assistance at services and meetings. In other words, if the pastor is trying to conduct a meeting and, and there's a need for uh, a vote at some kind of a meeting, maybe a business meeting or whatever, uh, the deacons and deaconesses, you know, they can be right on that, get the paper that's needed, the pens that are needed because they're going to do a secret ballot. Whatever it is, make sure the heat is on, the lights are on, the, everything's ready. Maybe water for people to drink if it's going to be a long meeting. I'm just those kinds of things, all right? Visitation of members, number two. Doing what? Visitation That won't be the last time we talk about that. Number three, what is it? <laughs> Preparation for baptismal service. Number four, assistance at? Communion, Communion service. Number five? 
Really? We haven't even talked about that yet, but we're coming to it. Care for the sick and the aiding the poor and the unfortunate. That's your job? Number six? Deacons, you thought that really was your only job, right? Together with the communion service, you knew about that part. And preparing for the baptismal service, you knew that. This gives you a foundational idea. Now, the thing I like about this book, it's going to expand this a little bit more, and we're going to get into it a little bit as much as I can in our, our basic course. But the time is going to slip away from me and is working at that really fast right now. I want to make sure you go away with a basic understanding of your duties, but within a framework of ministry and servanthood that God has for you and for me. Deacon, deaconesses, greet and visit, greet, uh, greeting and visiting guests and members. I thought that was the job of the greeters. Is it wrong for deaconesses to be out there greeting? You don't have to have the title of being a greeter, right? I mean, if the greeters are already doing that, why do you need to be doing that? This is teamwork together. This is working together. The greeter might greet a new guest, for example. Well, what a, what a wonderful thought that a deaconess was there to help them get acquainted with people in the church. So glad that you're here visiting today. When you start meeting that person, maybe you even sit down next to them in, in church on Sabbath morning, and as you get acquainted with them, you find out why they're visiting. Are they just there uh, coming because they're visiting their brother or their sister or their, or their parents or whatever in the community? Or are they coming there because they're looking for a church? Uh, what is the reason that they're coming there? All of a sudden, you get to learn a lot about those people. And you... You might find out that they are one of the people that are coming back because nobody visit, uh, would invite them to potluck years ago. Also, it's two or more than the willing to That helps too because when you're by yourself, it is hard. But when you come together, the Lord unites you together and you have the power. Exactly. That's what helps out with You're working together, you're blending together you're beginning to really begin to meet the needs of people in your church. And the best way to meet the needs of your people is to know them so you know what the needs are. And that's by getting acquainted with them. And that even means the people you don't like. Number two, assistance at baptisms. You knew that. Arrangements for the communion service. You realized that as well. Number four, the care and sick of the poor. Oh, that was just the deacons. I thought they were the ones supposed to do that. All right. Are there female people that get sick? Only the men get sick, right? The interesting thing is we'll look at this a little bit more tomorrow. But when you look at the, the role of the deacons and deaconesses in the early uh, church, think about what society was like in that day. Whenever somebody got sick in Jerusalem in 70, uh, oh, let's go back a little, 65 AD, if you got sick and you really needed a doctor, you picked up the phone and called 911, right? No. Different phone number? Were there hospitals in those days? So who was taking care of the people in the church when they got sick? Families. Yes, was the first line of defense. And then the question is, when the family was sick, who was taking care of them? And that's what began to be developed in the church, in caring for the needs of people. How many people in your church... How are our older folk who can't take care of themselves, maybe even don't have any family alive anymore, they're the only ones left? 
at any rate, deacons and deaconesses, your job, your work. Um, just exposing you to a little bit of what's here. And the last thing is care and maintenance of the property. Yes, the ladies can be involved in that process as well. Those are some simple, basic responsibilities and tasks for you. Partners in ministry working together for the advancements of the church. But I want to also emphasize that I realize that being a deacon and deaconess did not list there that you should be involved in giving Bible studies, you should be involved in teaching people the gospel and maybe even preaching and so on and so forth. But you know why it doesn't need to be there? Say that again, please. I want to get that in the recording. Say it aloud. It should be natural. It should be natural because you are a what? We are a Christian. We are Adventists. Amen. We're disciples. We're Christians. We are Adventists. All of us should be doing that. Now, here's the point that I want to make as we're coming to a conclusion this afternoon. And that is that you must first, the most important qualification for you as a deacon or a deaconess is that you must first be a Christian. And because you are a Christian, by definition of being a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then you want to share the message of His love for you. You want to do whatever God gives you the ability to do and maybe even beyond what you think are your abilities because God expands you in your skills and your talents. Absolutely. You do. And you care about the needs of those people that are around. Jesus cared about the needs of the people. What did we say at the beginning? The most important work that he did, the time he spent the most doing was healing people. Okay, that's why you're not doctors and nurses, unless you are a doctor or a nurse, but you are people that, yeah, pointing at people. You're caring about the needs of people in a way that you can. If you've got people in the church that are sick, what about the fact that they need food? Maybe they, you know, maybe the husband, the wife's been in the hospital and she's coming home, and the husband, he may be the cook in the family and he wants to cook, but maybe he's tired of cooking because he's been taking care of his wife in the hospital. I know what that's like. My wife was in the hospital for in and out here for quite a while. I knew the path to the hospital and emergency room quite well there for a while. But you know what? It's nice when the church shows caring for people. That's caring for the poor and the sick. Maybe it's not giving them shots, but maybe it's caring for the needs. Maybe it's mowing their lawn when that's needed because they don't have time to be able to do it or shoveling their snow or bringing them food, whatever the case may be. And you don't know about those things if you're not in touch with those needs and keeping connected with that. We are first disciples of Jesus. So I don't need to give you that description. But we are talking about something in the Michigan Conference we've been calling training center churches. How many of you have heard that term? Almost as many as raised your hand with a discipleship book. The whole idea of being a training center church is that Jesus, uh, Ellen White said in, in volume, volume 5, in chapter 5 of the book Christian Service, she said all our churches should be training schools for Christian workers. Are you a Christian worker? Amen. I'm going to ask that again. Are you a Christian worker? Amen. You're a Christian. You're a disciple. That makes you a Christian worker because you're servants, right? If you're a Christian worker and you're a Christian servant, are you also leaders in your church? 
Deacons and deaconesses are some of the highest, I don't like that term, but you know what I mean by it, some of the most responsible leaders in the church. That makes you leaders in your church. If you are the leaders of a training, training school church, who are the teachers in the training school church? The leaders are. You are. You're the ones that are teaching people how to themselves be disciples. If you're not a disciple for yourself, you're not helping people learn the truth and coming to the church, uh, into the church and all, how are you going to teach other people to do that? So that's why you have to first of all be a disciple, a committed disciple who's also involved in the work of advancing the gospel because not only you're teaching people how to be deacons, but you're teaching people how to be Christians, how to be Seventh-day Adventist Christians, to be disciples for Jesus. Don't go away discouraged today. Go away encouraged. Because the Jesus who called you to this work has promised that he's also going to be the one to lift you up in your work. And if there's something that you haven't been doing and he's calling you to do it, he will provide the help you need to do that work. We'll continue on tomorrow with a basic understanding. You've got to away, go away today with a basic understanding of the job descriptions and so on. We'll take a look at some of those things a little bit more in depth tomorrow. And uh, that will conclude our basic class. And then on Wednesday, we'll start our advanced class and dealing with some of the more challenging aspects of your work that have often been neglected and in most cases are neglected. But how to do them, how to do them to the best of your ability, and some of the tools and resources that you will need in order to be able to do that. Let's have a prayer as we conclude. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that Jesus has called us to this work of serving people. Thank you that he's also promised to give us what we need to be able to do it. I pray today for these deacons and deaconesses that you will encourage their hearts today, not by being overwhelmed with the job description, but being encouraged with the fact that there is opportunity here, maybe far beyond what they thought might be, in which they might be able to serve people as Jesus served people. So, Lord, as we go to our place today and enjoy the rest of this evening of camp meeting, watch over and keep us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.